Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor at the TLS. And at this stage, I'm usually joined by my co-host Alex Clark, or maybe Toby Lishtig, fiction editor, or Michael Keynes, another editor. But in fact, everybody is indisposed or ill. Poor Alex has been gadding around doing wonderful things for the past two weeks, and we wanted to hear about her exploits. But she's um, she doesn't have any voice, which makes it difficult to do a podcast. So rather than me chatting to myself for five minutes, which I think would be extremely painful for everyone, because this week we are going to talk to someone from a theatre company who are famous at, uh, what should we say, pulling back the curtain on how things are made. This week, we're going to talk to our producer, Charlotte Pardy. Charlotte, hello. Oh, my goodness. Hello. <laughs> Never thought I'd be this side of the TLS podcast. <laughs> You're a real person in front of the mic. <laughs> Would you believe it? <laughs> well, I believe it, but our lovely listeners have not uh, have not had the pleasure yet. Charlotte is responsible for all the magic, i.e., when, and I do say when advisedly, when we say stupid things or get it wrong or cough or, God forbid, curse, Charlotte silently stitches it all up behind the scenes and makes it sound, um, you know, makes it all sound like it's on purpose. So we are eternally grateful to Charlotte. And because it's a books podcast, Charlotte, right, I should be asking you what you've been reading and all that. But in fact, I think I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if you'd like to share with our listeners what you shared with uh, our guest Larry Wolf last week, just before we started our interview. Yeah, well, yeah, that was a uh, a good break for me. We usually have break in the podcast recordings, and uh, last week I shared with the guys just shortly before we started recording uh, that my parents have been travelling for the last three months. Very lucky things, and they returned last week. And my dad was prancing around the house, very proud of himself that he had this box of coffee and he wouldn't let us see the front of the box. And he was just like, we need to drink this coffee, you know, come and try it. And we were sat down very, you know, intent on trying it, tried yeah. it. It was delicious. Best That's good. I tasted, which is a good start mm -hmm. with my yeah. dad. There's always a catch. So I was like, okay, yeah. What's the, uh, what's the secret behind this? And he told us that it was cat poo coffee. Just a normal Wednesday then. Yeah, just dropped that in, that we were drinking cat poo coffee, which is why he was hiding the box from us, because there was a picture of a cat and its poo on oh, the box of the coffee. Oh, so it was yeah. really, they really weren't, they were very proud of it, whoever made it. Yeah. So can you explain? It's not coffee made of cat poo, is it? No, it's a you delicacy. Be dead, probably, if it were. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a delicacy in Bali, which is where they bought it from. 
And they went to the place where they make it. And essentially what happens is the cats eat the certain coffee beans. And when they digest it and poo it out, they then poo out this little, it's actually, there's there's loads of pictures of it. My dad's got a few <laughs> pictures of it as well. And okay, their poo yuck. literally looks like coffee beans. It just, honestly. Because it poo. is. Yeah, yeah, because it is. Okay. And then what they do is they've got like a hard outer shell and they break that shell out and then get the coffee that's in the middle of the poo. And then it's just like a, like normal coffee, ground up coffee. The thing is, it's just that we were talking to Larry, our guest, he was about to tell us about this wonderful opera. And I think it was like late morning. It was early for him because he was on a slightly different time zone. So he was just saying, oh, yes, you know, just had a coffee. And Charlotte brightly went, yeah, I've just had a coffee. <laughs> and <laughs> told us this. And Larry was absolutely brilliant. He took it in his stride. He waited a second and was like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's what he expected when he was coming to do an interview with the TLS, but it's good to throw some surprises in there, isn't it? It Well, it is. And in fact, we found out that Toby said there were civet cats. It's a particular sort of cat. It's not just any old cat. Don't try this at home. Yeah, don't try this with your cats. (laughs) Really don't. And presumably the cats are all right. It's not bad for them, is it? I don't think it is. No, I certainly hope not. Yes, well, let's hope not. I did actually talk to my mum about this and apparently they do it like one cat a day or something so that it's not like just overworking the cats. So they've got like quite a few of them. And and if they're not, you know, doing this coffee process, I guess, then they are out having fun and having what cats do, you know. So, So yeah, I don't don't think it's bad for them. No, no. okay, good. So there you go. Uh, You learn a lot, I hope on the TLS podcast and what we've learned is that Charlotte is real and she likes drinking cat poop coffee and you know maybe we all do if you know about this listeners do tell us maybe this is just a just a normal thing anyway apparently it's delicious but also as well as that we've got coming up on this week's show Simon McBurney of Complicite tells us about their haunting immersive new audio production of The Dark is Rising and a thrilling daring do story of stardom glamour and espionage that turns out to be true. So first, we're going to explore the completely fascinating story of what Josephine Baker, a song and dance star, did in the Second World War. War is one big recasting exercise, Sarah Watling tells us in her review of The Flame of Resistance by Damien Lewis. Socialites put on nursing uniforms, rebellious teens develop into heroes of the resistance, music hall stars become secret agents. We're very happy to have Sarah with us today to tell us what went on. Sarah, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you open your piece by describing a, a stop-off, a very glamorous, you kind of conjure up the scene of a, of a kind of whirlwind stop-off at a train station in the Pyrenees in 1940. Can you talk us through that, please? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, from the position of the staff at the station platform, it was just a kind of, um, you know, one of those kind of extraordinary celebrity sightings that maybe you get once or twice in your life of Josephine Baker just sort of unexpectedly descending from the train onto the platform, attended by her sort of very discreet tour manager and sort of surrounded by luggage and, you know, dressed in these wonderful furs and, and in sort of classic celebrity style, she just sort of charms everyone immediately has everyone's attention you know sweeps through the border checks because who would dare to sort of question or interrogate this sort of you know extraordinary star which is sort of the point because that luggage is packed with secret information that the what remains of the French military secret service the deuxième bureau 
is trying to smuggle out of France in order to get it into the hands of Britain, sort of at this point, the last standing free power in Europe. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, obviously it's it's a a scene taken from Damien Lewis's book, or I mean, not taken from, but I mean, it's a scene that Damien Lewis describes in his book as well. But to me, it just really sort of encapsulates the way in which a celebrity is in fact, you know, doesn't seem to be the obvious choice for a secret agent but is in fact an inspired person to choose because you know they do there is this sort of aura of celebrity that makes people seem untouchable mm. and that's not to sort of uh, minimize the the risks she was taking because of course nobody is untouchable and in some way she was far more vulnerable than a lot of other people but it does sort of speak to how brilliantly she was able to kind of to carry off some of her feats during the war Mm. And I was just thinking, actually, when you we just kind of say, oh, a station the Pyrenees in 1940. But as you say, 1940, I mean, in terms of the Allies, it was just disastrous, wasn't it? I mean, it was really clinging on to any shred of hope that you could. And France was, lots of Europe was basically under German occupation. Yeah, I mean, it's this disastrous moment in which the Germans really do seem unstoppable. And mm. I mean, the point that, that Lewis makes is that, you know, the Germans had swept through France and had in their possession you know a a good proportion of the records of the security services as well so I mean there was a chance that before they'd even begun their covers had been blown and Germany had agents operating in in France for a long time before they invaded and of course they immediately released all of the agents that Josephine Baker's superiors in the secret services had imprisoned over the last few years so they also had information from them and this is why what Josephine Baker and her colleague and eventually her lover Jacques Abti why what they were doing was so important was because the very rapid advance of the Germans through Europe had also utterly blinded the British secret services so they really had no way of knowing what was happening on the ground in occupied France and there this journey that they took over the Pyrenees was the first attempt to um, reopen that line of communication between the British and French secret services mm. and it was Jacques Abti who was being her tour manager yes exactly yes. right so he was by her side the whole time and so she just that was his cover yeah 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 it sounds like a scene from a film <laughs> except I mean it, it should real. be a scene from a film. <laughs> yes yes you're right yeah yeah and as you say Josephine she had already had a number of roles to play in her life up until then even when friends she was very young onwards and from her childhood in America hadn't she yeah she had I mean one of the things that I don't think I had fully appreciated until sort of doing some research for this piece was just the kind of the real deprivation that she had come from. I mean, of course, it's part of her kind of legend is that she she was this sort of impoverished girl from St. Louis who became this sort of European star. But I mean, the the extent of what she had gone through in order to even get to Paris is extraordinary. And And what was interesting also is the way that she kind of took ownership of that story and reworked it in ways that suited her. You know, she used it to send her career in the directions that she wanted to go and to enable her to talk about the kind of causes that she wanted to talk about. And it's very interesting when you look at sort of like the breadth of her career, the way that she kind of manipulated and negotiated these different images and almost sort of took her audience with her on these journeys and guided them in the direction that she wanted to take them by making these sort of tweaks and transitions you know, from the kind of, I'm using air quotes here, the sort of primitive dancer who arrived in Paris and kind mm. of captivated the sort of worldly uh, Parisians 
to the sort of the Cinderella story that she kind of employs in a lot of the movies that she made in the early 1930s to the sort of um, Madonna figure that she became later in life when she adopted a number of children and tried to sort of establish what she called her rainbow tribe, the sort of multicultural brotherhood mm. um, that she was trying to create. And it's it's really sort of fascinating and sort of canny and the way that, I mean, any woman obviously is always kind of working within the limits of what what the world is sort of willing to grant her. Um, and the way that she kind of nudged at those limits and reworked them is is really, I mean, brilliant and fascinating. Mm. And especially, as you say in the piece, as a black woman, because she she encountered enormous amount of racism and danger in the US. And she loved France, didn't she? As you say, not least because France loved her, turned her into a star. But there was, like you're saying, with the air quotes, and they that's what they saw her as, the, the sort of primitive dancer when she arrived. But actually she changed that, as you say, didn't she? She she became an artist rather than a sort of faceless dancer, as it were. So she, she loved France and she felt more accepted there than in the US. It wasn't just empty talk when she offered to help, because I think she offered to help in the war quite early on, didn't she? She did, yeah. She she sort of very dramatically offered her life for France. And I mean, that, you know, to talk about, you know, the way that France loved her back, and yet, of course, going to France did not sort of free her entirely from racism, obviously. No, no. And what's interesting is the way, you know, there's this moment that Damien Lewis explains in his book of when Jacques Abdi first meets her, and he's, there is, of course, this sort of legacy of Matahari, of course, which sort of makes him a little bit reluctant to even consider the idea of employing a performing woman as a as a spy but he is very impressed by her sort of her enthusiasm and her determination and this offer that she makes to to give her life for France and there's a moment where he says to her you know if you do this work with me he says something like you will become one of us and of course you know by this point she had married a Frenchman so she was she was one of them yes, already yeah. and there's this way that you know there is this kind of playing on the insecurities of a person who is an immigrant to a country to sort of encourage them into this this sense of going above and beyond what other people might feel that they need to do you know and that this sense that the ground is never entirely secure beneath the feet of someone like Josephine Baker and perhaps that is why she works harder than anyone else and she goes further than anyone else and she does better things than anyone else. When she was called upon to help this is what she did is that she smuggled information mostly out to the allies or uh, did she sort of make connections I mean she did all sorts of things did she? Yeah so the first major thing that they do is that they get the information out of France in this moment in 1940 and that they managed to make uh, contact with the British via Portugal. She does a number of um, journeys where she is carrying information, which in itself is obviously a very dangerous thing to be doing. And before that, she had already kind of given refuge to um, a number of people who were at risk from the Germans in her home in the Dordogne. And then as the war goes on, as particularly once she relocates with Abti to North Africa, she is very influential in sort of in helping the allies to cultivate the kind of leaders in North Africa who can be of use to them and to persuade them to kind of throw their lot in with the allies. Um, and she's also extremely good at <laughs> getting diplomats to tell her more than they probably should do, which is, of course, a very useful thing yes. to do if you're you know, at a party with a lot of diplomats and military commanders in somewhere like Spain, which is, you know, I mean, at this point, Spain is ruled by Franco, who had just won the Spanish Civil War with the help of Hitler and Mussolini. So, 
you know, there are people in Spain who have very useful information for someone like Josephine Baker. I can't remember if you said this or if this is from the book, that sometimes she was carrying intelligence so significant that it landed on Churchill's desk. Yeah, it's hard to overstate how important some of the information it seems that they were shuttling, you know, to to the UK was. And and I think what the book does quite well is convey, you know, just how (laughs) vast and sort of rackety a lot of these networks were and how they were coming from all sorts of directions. And some of them were were very kind of independent operations and, you know, people who perhaps had always been sort of living on the margins of respectable society had skills that were of use to, you know, the military or the secret services and, and all these kind of different efforts eventually sort of converged in North Africa and helped the Allies to make the landings of Operation Torch in that sort of pivotal moment in the war that really kind of turned the tide in some ways. Mm -hmm. You said that her role kind of changed then and and she became, I think this is a quote from Damien Lewis, the glue that held together the coalition of the willing, because as you say, there's lots of lots of people there who who sort of need bringing together. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And I mean, this is also sort of one of the ways that she ends up in this slightly kind of compromised position in North Africa and that a lot of the people who the Allies rely on to help them make gains there are people who have to be persuaded that this war has to be won by the Allies before the question of independence can be settled. Mm. And that obviously is not a question that is acceptably settled right at the end of the war. But she is a very important figurehead because... She is a kind of unifying figure for North Africans and, you know, the French on both sides of Vichy France and Free France and the US. You know, the Americans arrive with a segregated army and she's, you know, one of the few figures who can really, who has the kind of fame and of course the kind of identity that can unite black soldiers and white soldiers and North Africans. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that you say about how how well suited she was to it in a way, almost trained for it, and that you were struck by how actually how celebrities are very well suited to it. And it's not just the thing about the kind of nobody daring to challenge them, is it? You say that also that they they train hard. Also, they're good actors, I suppose. Yeah, well, and I think one of the crucial things is that, you know, they can work really, really hard and push themselves to breaking point, but make it seem effortless. Mm, mm. They're very, I mean, you know, you have to be very good at hiding pain and fear and any of those things if you're going to kind of go on stage and beguile your audience and that you know is what she was doing at the station is something that she had been doing on stage many times you know I mean she rehearsed um, and worked her body to breaking point a number of times um, and you know would would dance you know bleed through her shoes while dancing on stage and you would if you're in the audience you would have no idea Mm. and she was very ill even in the middle of the war wasn't she and is that right and she had people coming into her into her kind of sick room it was still carrying on in there it's a little bit kind of shadowy what exactly happened and Lewis explains that she developed an infection from somebody using an infected needle whilst giving her an x-ray although I know some of her biographers have suggested that she may have had a stillborn baby um, whilst she was in Morocco but she did she became very very sick and I think there were moments when her life was sort of despaired of and again it's another you know example of her tenacity that she kind of insisted on they very quickly realized that a hospital room was a very is a sort of unassailable place you can't really kind of storm in there with a load of police and so she used it as a as you say a kind of place to host all of these people who couldn't normally be safely brought together and as a kind of safe place for people to speak openly pretty extraordinary behavior isn't it 
And does the book, it's called The Flame of Resistance, The Untold Story of Josephine Baker's Secret War. Does it live up to the subtitle? Is it an untold story? I mean, it is to the extent that, I mean, Lewis is using some papers that were only released to the public in the last couple of years, I think. I mean, it's not an entirely unknown story. I mean, there are a number of people who who wrote memoirs in the years after the war, including Jacques Abdi, who wrote at least, I think, two books kind of telling some of these stories. Um, but one of the points that Lewis makes is that, you know, as opposed to the resistance, which was always sort of fairly independent, slightly sort of ad hoc sort of collection of people, Baker and Abdi were both employed by the sort of official secret services. So they had much stricter rules of secrecy, you know, that carried on for long after the war. So there was a lot that was kind of quite shadowy. And it is sort of notable in much writing about Baker that it is a kind of period of her life that is acknowledged as being very important and and was a period that she often kind of referred to as the, the best or the most meaningful part of her life. But that because there was so little kind of verifiable detail, it, it tends to be sort of skimmed over or that, you know, it's difficult to make really big claims for what she was doing because it's so hard to verify so much of, of what's going on or, you know, that the stories are different and competing or the identities can't really be confirmed. And she, in fact, was, you know, very um, assiduous about keeping the secrets from that period. That's what I was going to say is that she she didn't go, oh, well, you know, I did some pretty good stuff in the war. The story then it kind of moved on, didn't it? And as you say, it was, it was about her rainbow tribe of children and and about her I can't remember what she called herself it wasn't the mother of France but you know something like that so she she herself didn't didn't go around saying how great she was in the war no she didn't and I'm sure that was partly her you know I'm sure it was partly sort of a kind of humility or sort of knowing how important it was and but I also think you know there is a sense in which again this is is quite a kind of canny reading of her audience you know that in de Gaulle's France they were extremely selective about which heroes of the resistance they would celebrate and very few of them were women you know because that wasn't really the role assigned to women in you know conservative 1950s Europe that they could be these kind of heroic figures who did the kind of daring do type tales that men could do and so by kind of slightly repositioning herself as as you say this sort of maternal figure a more kind of humanitarian figure she made herself palatable in a way that you know some of the kind of communist women who had been active in the resistance just weren't Mm. Um, and she was also you know she remained a great supporter of de Gaulle so I think in some ways you know she didn't have to kind of proclaim her her record of heroism because others were willing to do it for her you know she was decorated she often appeared in public in her French military air force uniform And also, you know, I think it was probably a case of her own priorities shifting. And there were many battles she wanted to take on in the post-war world that took up a lot of her energies and attention. Mm -hmm. It's a completely fascinating story. And thank you so much for um, talking us through it, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.
Still to come on the show, the dark is rising and who can turn it back? We find out from Simon McBurney, the artistic director of Complicité Theatre Company. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. It is deep midwinter, just before Christmas. The world is cold and sunless. There's a feeling of things not being right in the air. I'm not, in fact, talking about our present moment, but the setting of The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper, part of a series of that name which explores old ideas and interminglings of good and bad, everyday and uncanny, modernity and myth. Next week, it will be on the BBC World Service in an adaptation by the endlessly innovative and influential Complicité Theatre Company. Its co-founder and artistic director, Simon McBurney, adapted it, directed it and narrates it. And we are delighted that he's here today to talk to us. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. At the moment, in fact, in the south of England, where the book is set, the weather is behaving as it should, isn't it, for once, and providing the perfect backdrop for the opening of The Dark is Rising. It's really marvellous because... The young boy, Will, who's 11 years old, looks out of the window on the first page of the book and sees a sprinkling of grey snow and says, it's my birthday tomorrow. But he knows that there is one thing that he wishes for, which he won't get, which is snow. And when it does begin to snow, and it doesn't stop. And the snow is there in an attempt, if you like, to overwhelm the world as an act of power on behalf of what is known as the forces of darkness. And before I go on any further, Mm -hmm. what I would like to say is that I did not adapt it. I had co-adapted it. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. With Robert McFarlane. Yeah. Robert McFarlane, who's the most wonderful uh, writer and also a friend and collaborator. 
And he it was who introduced me to the book a few years ago. And then I started reading it to my children and we couldn't stop reading it. Yes. And I did all of the quintet of books and it was very exciting. We did it late at night and we sometimes even used torches. And yeah. I think the most extraordinary thing about these books is their eeriness. It's not just that they are books which give you scares and horror, but they get under your skin in a way that many other mythical books don't. And they, of course, have been enormously influential because Philip Pullman named apparently in homage Will in The Subtle Knife after Will in The Darkest Rising. So mm. they are rather... They're beautiful books, rather secret in the sense that some people of a certain generation know them very well. And for others, of course, there will be this wonderful introduction, I hope, for people who enjoy it. And if you don't, if you can't get it on the World Service, you will also be able to find it both on podcast and on Radio 4, because Radio 4 have asked for a version which is going to be 45 minutes a day i think it starts on boxing day i'm not quite sure okay perfect so yeah. there'll be lots of different opportunities and the reason that we are starting it on the solstice is because that is the day of the first chapter of the book and then the chapters follow if you like the days across christmas and that is when the conflict takes place in this particular one of the quintet the dark is rising. That's when the conflict takes place between Will, who discovers that he is part of a time-traveling group of extraordinary beings called Old Ones. He discovers this on his 11th birthday, but he also discovers that he has a quest, which is to collect the six great signs of power, which are little circles quartered by a cross which he has to loop on his belt and once he has got all the signs of power then he is able if you like to there is this huge showdown at the end of the book mm -hmm. the dark is suppressed but not vanquished in the implication that of course it will return again yeah well i was going to ask why you choose to adapt it now but you've answered me with talking about robert mcfarlane and you discovering it as well it's one thing about the book, because it's nearly 50 years old, it's nearly bang on 50 years old, isn't it? It does amazingly still feel very modern. It's got this kind of rebuttal of insularity. It seems to me it does this very difficult thing of celebrating English myth and countryside without seeming at all little Englandy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's very it's kind of international, which is something you emphasize from the start in this in this version, don't you? Yes. He will receives a a gift from his brother who is in the army and is stationed in Jamaica and he is given a gift by a Jamaican when Will's brother James was in carnival out of the blue he was given a gift and it turns out to be a carnival extraordinary carnival mask but of course what happens is that this alerts Will to the fact that the old ones are from all over the world. And we have chosen, if you like, to put this right at the front of our version so that you meet Will and then you suddenly catapult across the world to Jamaica and you meet a Jamaican old one and you realise that this is a group of these people, are men and women, are scattered throughout the globe from all different nations. But it's not only that, I think, which makes this not so insular and 
as you called it, Little England, I think the fact that the myths that are being evoked are myths, like most myths, lie under so many different cultures, myth of struggle, myth of creation, myths about the future and about our origin in the past. And so we get a sense of the land being older than the culture, which now rather superficially sits on top of it, Mm. just as we get the sense that our common heritage, of course, which it is, is much older than the way that we think about it when we actually live our all too brief human lives. Mm, I was going to talk about the myth and history and religion as well. It's very deft, it seems to me, what she does, because she includes Christianity, for instance. She makes it very much part of the picture, but it doesn't provide all the answers, nor is it irrelevant. It's, as you said, it's this sense that it's it's one of the things lying on top of this very ancient land, I guess. That's right. And you get the sense as at one point will when he enters these moments of timelessness because he is a time traveler and he needs to enter these timeless spaces i suppose which open like cracks there are also great wooden doors which lead into different times when he enters them he at one point he is rescued by an extraordinary horse which flies him through the air And he looks down over the countryside and he sees these Neolithic symbols carved into the hillsides below him. And he recognizes these as being connected to him and to our age. So there is a sense of connection with a deep past as well as the immediate present. Mm. And why did you decide to do it this way? I know that you have used sound design before a lot haven't you particularly I think for the encounter when you gave the audience the headphones and used the binaural techniques so to reproduce the way we hear things naturally to get this really immersive effect but why did you choose to do it for this story? Well we use a binaural head and for anybody who's listening to this a binaural head imitates the human head so when you hear something which has been recorded binaurally. And truly, you can only hear it to its fullest extent if you're wearing headphones, which is Mm. why it's wonderful that it's going on a podcast because most people listen to podcasts through headphones. Of course, not everybody, but a huge proportion. And what happens is you feel that the world literally surrounds you so that if you were in the jungle, you could feel and hear the mosquitoes right behind your head or coming up to your ear. And in this case, in The Dark is Rising, you can really literally sense the crunching snow and the breath of horses right Mm. against your ears and behind your neck. And I decided that in order to bring the timeless parts of the book even more present, I would record all of those binaurally and the present time would be more conventionally in stereo. So while it's a wonderful sound, the contemporary world, if you like, is a little more prosaic and it makes the timeless and magical world 
more physical and real or if you might you could say heightened in a way so somebody banging on an anvil is 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 very physically present and you know the black rider who has red hair and blue eyes his presence becomes really quite disturbing when mm. you hear him in binaural sound because he seems to be stalking literally stalking around your own head Actually, I'm glad you said that about the hoofbeats and the horse because we've got a little bit that we can play in a minute. That's exactly one of the bits I chose because the horses sound so wonderful. But what I mean also is why did you choose to do it only in sound and not stage it, as it were, not a stage production? What was there about it that made you want to do an audio version? Well, I have been lucky enough to start a family rather late in life. I have no other family and I met the most remarkable person and we decided that we wanted to have a family and one of the incredible joys of being in a family is as the children come to tell them stories mm. and so that was really a habit that has gone on for the last 13 years as my children have been growing up and the storytelling that takes place place in bed every night is such a very very intimate event and that intimacy of course is most present I think in terms of what we hear in terms of the radio in terms of the recorded spoken word when I was little I had a record of a Christmas carol and I used to play it over and over because I could really sense, I really felt as if it was being told to me alone. Mm. And so there is something in this book which is almost not possible to translate into other forms. And I think extremely difficult, would be extremely difficult to translate onto the stage. It has been, somebody has attempted to do it on film with disastrous results. By using the sound world, by doing it on the radio, you have a really tremendously visual sense of where you are because you can evoke it with sound and just a few words and everybody who's listening immediately is plunged into wherever you are because it's their imaginations, of course, which are engaged. Your imagination is far more real than any sort of fakery that you might put in front of your eyes or even in the theatre. It's so exciting. So it's the oldest form of storytelling in a way. It's one person telling a story to another person. Yes. Of course, in this particular case, it's heightened because although I narrate it, when we cut it together, the vast amounts of things that we cut were essentially my narration. It became less and less important as we discovered that things were unnecessary. On the other hand, it's a wonderful form of glue which can take us from place to place. And I try to narrate in a way which might make people feel that I'm with them and very mm. quietly observing the scene uh, together just to give them the sense of sort of what kind of shape of room they're in, what people are wearing, um, what we can see in the distance and so on. Mm. So it's a kind of helping hand rather than a strident narration. This like, yeah, someone just next to you in your ear pointing out, look at that bit. This this is happening over here. This is why. We can hear a clip of it here. This is from the second episode. As I said, I've chosen a bit with the horse because, as you say, especially in the headphones, they just sound 
It just sounds as though there's a horse behind you. It's amazing. So this is where Will Stanton is having, he's having a very strange day on his birthday and he's talking to John, a local blacksmith. John Smith turned and looked down at him for the first time and compassion crossed his weathered face. And you'll learn much more for this is only your first day. My first day? Follow your nose through the day, boy. Just follow your nose. Suddenly, a white mare, without rider or harness, trotted into the clearing towards them. A reverse image of the rider's midnight black stallion, and she came to stand quietly beside Will. Good mare, good mare. Come in good time. Look well, young Will. We've not seen a horse like this ever before, but this will not be the last time. Oh, she's beautiful. Mount. Bitch. I'm not joking. It's your privilege. Take hold of her mane where you can reach it. You will see. So Will reached up into her mane and... But how did I get up there? When I have shot her, she will even carry you, if you ask. John, no. I think... I think I'm supposed to go alone. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Go well, young Will. Remember, Will, follow your nose. Stick to the path. And can I ask you about your next project, Complicite's next project, which is a staging, isn't it, of uh, Olga Tokarczuk's Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is, right. I was trying to think if they had anything in common and snow was the only thing I could think of, really. Lots of snow, but a very different book, a kind of present day animal rights noir. What drew you to that one? I think she's the most remarkable writer. And it's fascinating because you use, you describe it as a, present day animal rights noir and those are only three of i would say a dozen different themes and ideas that yes yeah. juggles like some extraordinary circus performer sort of verbal circus performer throughout the book because it's also about the invisibility of older women it's also about what happens to a woman as she gets older and she goes from being a construction engineer to a teacher to somebody teaching part-time in a little village or on the outskirts of southern Poland. It's also about the nature of the land in Central Europe, that part of Poland which borders on Czechoslovakia, which was, of course, until the second end of the Second World War, Germany, all of these were German villages and everywhere which is in conflict now, places like Lviv in the western Ukraine were Poland and south of that Drohobich, where, of course, famously Bruno Schulz came from. And all of those people after the Second World War were moved to western Poland on this area of land where they themselves feel sort of extremely impermanent and something's uncertain. And in this uncertain world, if you like, the dominance of the local and quite ag aggressive local patriarchy, who are all hunters, they are the people who, as it were, rule over this area, which has a kind of the whole 
land has a kind of darkness and she's constantly alluding in a, in another thematic twist to the fact that there are as many bodies under the ground as there are trees because of the way that this land has changed hands. So you get something, if you like, there is the sense of the darkness of Europe, which overcomes her you know, the darkness of all these men's wars. So these are just some of the themes that she is mm. holding in her hands, you know, as well as, yes, you could say animal rights, but also a philosophical meditation on the nature of animal consciousness. Are we the only ones with souls? And if so, what on earth does that mean? And why should humans have souls and animals not have souls? And then, of course, there is another theme, which is the whole question of time and prediction. As flies are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Are we manipulated by forces which are much greater than us, which we can't know about? Or are we actually autonomous and able to predict our own lives? The theme of what we're doing here and how we exist within the vastness of our infinite universe is something which obsesses her. So, you know, there's the theme of her looking up at the stars as an astrologer and trying to make sense of the world and not only look up at the stars, but look at the very, very small as she becomes fascinated with beetles and mushrooms that grow underground. And it's the most extraordinary story because it works on so many levels. And if you like, I think the most accurate description of this central character, Janina, is the fact that she's looking for shapes, if you like, or forms. She's looking to try to find the patterns that make up our world and also register those which, if you like, have got out of shape, out of hand. And perhaps the dominant shape that has got out of hand is the fact that essentially this is a world which is has been shaped by men. And this imbalance has meant that we live in a very precarious environment. And one of the things that the central character is doing is trying to correct that imbalance. Yeah, yes. yes, she is against the hunters. There's also, I should say, I'm not claiming, by the way, that mine was a, a good summing up of it. <laughs> no, no, of course you're not. I think it was very fascinating because it's a brilliant summing up. Well, but not really, but it, it's, it's very partial, of course. You, you could try and do that in so many different ways and also not get it because it, she, she's a, a poet as well as a consummate storyteller, you know. I was going to mention Blake as well. Nick does the very bold thing of talking about translations of Blake within the book, which for the translator, apart from anything else, must have been, you know, a hell of a thing to work with. This amazing idea when you talk about the consciousness, there's that the particular speech when she says, someone is crunching on someone else's bones, someone's got a bag made out of someone's skin, that kind of thing. And she completely changes the perspective by referring to the animal as someone yes not just the human she says you know he's carrying a bag made of someone's skin and it just it's so such a shocking passage that because it just sounds just horrific and you realize that's how she sees it and that's a way of seeing it yes and i was going to say actually a lot of a lot of writing fiction and poetry that we encounter now is dealing with the climate crisis and our relationship with the, the rest of the natural world. How We're not separate, but we are a part of it. This seems like something that Complicité has been exploring for a while too, and you're going to do that in this show, are you? 
Well, I, I've, I've, I think we've always been interested in the idea of connection, what connects people up, both externally in terms of their physical presence, but also in terms of their inner worlds. And equally, what then connects all of that to the land that they tread on? I'm afraid I'm going to have to sever our brief connection now. I'm sorry, our brief no. interdependence. But thank you so much for talking to us. Not at all. And to anybody who's listening, thank you for listening. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Sarah Watling and Simon McBurney. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>